Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You are tuning in to episode four of Journeys into Whiteness. If you are a repeat listener, you might have noticed that the title has changed slightly. That was done in an effort to kind of simplify things and make it easier for people to find this podcast and not get too many words all jumbled up in their brain and their mouth. But otherwise, the journey has not changed. I'm your host, tour guide, whatever metaphor you want to use, Jimmy Lincoln, here once again to tell personal stories related to white supremacy and the socialization of white children and white adults in the United States. For those who might be new to this program, or for those who are returning listeners and feel like you're still trying to wrap your minds around what this project is. Another metaphor that I stumbled across recently, and I certainly can't, can't take credit for this one, is that in many ways white supremacy is this complex tapestry of language and symbols and culture and economics and laws and tradition and history and geography, and all these various factors. And what I think I'm trying to do, what I hope I'm trying to do, is to target some of those threads in that tapestry from a very, very personal standpoint. And by doing so, as I've mentioned before, and I'll continue to mention, I'm hoping to engage all of my listeners in an ongoing conversation. So when you hear that email address at the end of the episode, please, please, please hit me up. I want to hear your stories. I want to hear your questions. I want to hear your criticisms. And I promise as much as possible, as much as time permits, I will share those on the air in future episodes so that it can really feel like a conversation between me and all of my listeners. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're here for. A few housekeeping items, and then we're going to jump right into today's story, which I'm really excited about. And as frustrating and difficult as it is to talk about this topic, it's also such a powerful conversation that I'm engaged in with so many of y'all that I do get a bit excited about talking about this stuff. So it's kind of weird. It's definitely not something that's always comfortable, but it is something that kind of gets me up and gets me amped and gets me, gets me hyped to talk about. So some housekeeping. And if you're a new listener, I'll try to clue you in as much as possible for my return listeners you might be anticipating some of this housekeeping. First and foremost, we're only on our fourth episode and already I'm feeling a lot of love and support from people all over the place. So first and foremost, just thank you for anyone who's tuning in. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. If you're a new listener, thank you for checking me out. I cannot stress that enough. Because as much as this is a personal project and as much as if I was just sitting in my bedroom talking out loud, this stuff would benefit me. But it's so much more beneficial to all of us if I actually have listeners so that we can engage in this conversation. So I, I deeply and sincerely appreciate anybody who's taken time out of their day to listen to my voice. Second thing that I've got to talk about because I'm hearing a lot. I got to talk about my grandmother briefly again, and really all my family members, and more generally everybody who's going to show up in this podcast at some point, whether it's a teacher, a coach, a police officer, a friend, because I got a lot of feedback on episodes two and three. My grandmother plays a starring role in episodes two and three, and a lot of people pointed out that I kind of... Not, not just spilled the tea on my grandma, but that I was dragging her a bit. I was gunning for her. That I called her out. That I perhaps was mildly disrespectful. For those of y'all who are new, 
in episode two, I talked about how my grandmother repeated some very negative racial stereotypes about a child whom she had taught in her kindergarten class, a child who, it turns out, grew into a very famous basketball player, Ralph Sampson. But that was almost secondary, right? That was just the bait to get you to tune in. The important part of that was in that episode, I said my grandmother was racist. And I repeated the story she would tell me about a child's intellectual abilities or lack of intellectual abilities to to hear her tell it. And then episode three was also a story from my grandmother's kindergarten class. And it wasn't one that necessarily painted her as the antagonist, necessarily painted her as the bad guy. But it was certainly a story that had racialized undertones. And so when I heard from some people, they weren't necessarily mad, but they were like, damn, man, you going at grandma? And so I want to clarify, and I'm going to try and state this as clearly as I can, so that anyone who thinks I'm going at grandma maybe can better understand what's going on here. My intent with this podcast is not to go at my grandma. It's not to go at my former coaches or teachers or professors or coworkers. This is not a game of gotcha. And in fact, the only names you're really going to hear on this podcast other than my own are going to be well-known names. And spoiler alert, there aren't that many. Ralph, back in episode two, might be the most famous name that y'all are going to come across. But my, as I said, my goal is not to catch people. I'm not trying to throw red paint on people's names. I'm trying to be as honest as I can about systemic white supremacy. In other words, I'm coming for all white folks. Most especially myself. Because the more that I reflect and the more that I read and the more that I shut the F up and listen. The more that it dawns on me that every single white person. Is involved in this tapestry of white supremacy. We're either actively. Upholding this system. Passively upholding this system or actively tugging at some of the threads. However, this is not a system that any of us, white, black, or otherwise, can escape. When we talk about the socialization of racialized ideas, nobody in this country can escape that. It is impossible. Now, it doesn't mean we're all socialized identically, and it doesn't mean that we all react to that socialization identically. But it does mean that we are all caught up in this web, this tapestry, these threads. And therefore, on this podcast, every white person I talk about is going to be complicit. And perhaps even at times, some non-white people are going to be complicit. I love my grandmother. She was an incredible woman. Incredible in many ways. She was also a woman whose views on race, I'm convinced, evolved over time. And I'll go into detail about that evolution in future episodes. However, I wouldn't be doing this project correctly. I wouldn't be helping any of my listeners engage in some real conversation if I was going to exempt certain people from the conversation, certain relatives, certain people whom I respect. Nobody's exempt from this, most especially, like I said, myself. So just please, please, y'all keep that in mind because I'm going to come for a lot of people. But as I mentioned a second ago, I'm really not coming for them. I'm trying to just unravel this tapestry that's got us all, at least all of us who are white, all complicit in this system of of white supremacy.
And I promise you, if we're keeping tallies by the end of this, this journey, I'm going to probably have more, more shame on my own name than anyone else. Because as much as I want to think of myself as woke, as much as I want to think of myself as down, that's just not the case. That concept, by the way, is really kind of problematic. Because I'm still learning and I'm still stepping in it and I'm still doing things that I, that I need to move past and that I need to, to alter and grow. So just keep that in mind. I do love my grandma. I love my grandfather. He's going to come up in future episodes. I love my parents. I love myself, or at least I try to. But we're all going to be part of this discussion. If not, this discussion is not going to work. In fact, by exempting individuals, specifically white individuals, from this discussion of white supremacy is one of the ways we've gotten to this point in 2020 that we're at. Because systemic white white supremacy is everywhere. Systemic racism is everywhere. But I'm guessing very few of us know anyone, know very few of us white listeners know anyone who actually claims to be racist. And part of that is because we define racism, in, or typically we have defined racism in this very narrow way in terms of individual acts of discrimination. Shout out to the young lady who just had Webster's change the definition of racism and expand it, by the way. I can't recall her name off the top of my head, but I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find her name. But if we are willing to expand our definition of racism beyond these individual acts of discrimination and start to look at it systemically and as a process, then I think we'll find that we're all complicit. So that's... That's what I have to say about Grandma and anyone else in the future who comes up in these episodes. Though I wish my grandmother were still alive. She would have an opinion on this podcast. I can tell you that. And she would let me know. And I promise I would share it with y'all. And as my family members chime in, maybe I'll share those opinions with you. I have heard from one family member. A gentleman who's older than me, a generation older than me, so he's my mom's age. In fact, he's my mom's first cousin. He's the son of my grandmother's sister. And I got a Facebook message from him, and I just saw his name. And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, damn, I went and offended somebody in my family already. We're only three episodes in, and I'm, I'm having uncomfortable Thanksgiving table-type conversations. But to my great pleasure... His message was nothing but supportive. He immediately engaged in the conversation that I'm trying to have. And so I guess what I'm saying is this isn't about guilt or blame. And finding out that people in your life, and then once again, I guess this is for my white listeners, finding out that people in your life are ensnared by white supremacy doesn't mean you stop loving them. And it doesn't mean you wallow in guilt and shame and any of that, because I don't know if feelings of guilt and shame do much. And I don't think they do much at all to destroy systemic racism. But it does mean now that we can recognize these patterns and processes, that maybe we can hold those people in our lives more responsible and certainly hold ourselves more responsible. Third piece of housekeeping, some interaction with some of my listeners. My first episode tied heavily into notions of residential segregation in this country. Something that 99.9% of y'all can identify with because this country is incredibly segregated residentially. And then we see how that residential segregation trickles into our schools and trickles into our youth sports programs and trickles into all these cultural and social and economic interactions that we have. But one of my listeners, a gentleman who's also a generation older than me, so I guess a gentleman who's old enough to be my father, he reached out to me via email 
in response to my first episode. And I just want to read what he had to say about about his experiences. And this is kind of in, in a general sense, but I think it's important because I think to hear this, I think many of my listeners, if you listen to what he's saying and then go back and reflect on it, you'll be able to think of specific ways that that what he is describing manifested itself in your life or still manifests itself in your life. He says, and I quote, I think one of the most immediate messages sent to all of us as youngsters was implicit and centered on residential segregation. This man, by the way, is a white man. I continue. They, in quotes, live over there. We live over here. They and we are different, and their neighborhood is poorer or has more crime, and therefore where they live and they themselves are considered lesser or inferior or problematic and to be avoided and feared. We, on the other hand, are considered to be superior and need to be and need to protect ourselves from them. It is very much the same message that you got from your counselors in episode one. If you haven't heard episode one because you're a new listener, there you go. Now's your chance. Tune in. For many of us, not a word had to be spoken about black people or Negroes, as they were referred to in earlier generations. Look, just saying the word Negro had my tongue stumbling, right? I was nervous. That's not a word you're supposed to say anymore. Don't worry, I'm not going to ever say the other N-word, but I wanted to quote him accurately. Sorry, back to back to his quote. The unsaid message came across loud and clear from their slash our segregation. That's a powerful sentence right there, right? Like white supremacy can be passed on simply by geography. No one has to say a word. Because I'm sure a lot of y'all don't have stories similar to mine where you have two counselors who take this implicit message of segregation and make it very violent and explicit. That's not something that happened to all of my listeners, I'm sure. But I guarantee all of my listeners out, out there in any part of the country, Arizona, Alabama, Arkansas, you name it. have recognized the residential segregation that exists in your cities and towns. And the very fact that that segregation exists often sends a message. So I appreciate that listener sending in that email because he was really able to capture in just a few sentences what episode one was all about. And I have to nerd out on y'all for just a second. I realize that the whole point of this podcast is for me to take you on a personal journey. And don't worry, we're getting there. But I don't want to miss the opportunity to include some historical context. So when we're talking about residential segregation, the roots of that segregation in this country are deep. So if you want to do some further research for yourself, some things you can Google some things you can look up and read more about. Check out the Homestead Act. That was the law that basically either sold very cheaply or gave away land to settlers throughout the 19th century. Do some reading on that act and how that law reinforced or helped to create racial segregation, racial residential segregation in this country. Check out the GI Bill and the way that law that was used post-World War II and throughout the latter half of the 20th century, how that law reinforced racial residential segregation. And the FHA, which carried out much of the GI Bill, at least when it came to housing and housing loans. Dig into that and see what you find out about racial residential segregation. Look into discriminatory housing covenants, something that's illegal now in our country, but that has a long history. Or look up the the concept of white flight or redlining. Do some digging, do some reading. Even the Interstate Highway Act from the 1950s that created our wonderful interstate highway system. 
has a racialized component to it. And if you don't want to dig up all these issues separately and you want to find just a single book that can discuss all of this, there's no better place to start than a book called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, an incredible book that charts all the ways that local, state, and federal governments have enacted and enforced residential segregation based on race in this country throughout our country's history. Please check that stuff out. I'm telling you, it will anger you, but it'll surprise and inform you and hopefully give you some tools and some understanding to kind of move forward to try to to help tug at these threads that I talked about earlier in today's episode. The last bit of housekeeping for today, and then we're going to jump into today's story. In episode one, I mentioned a game that I played at summer camp. And I described how it was played with these by holding these bowling pins, these duck pin-sized bowling pins, and knocking a ball around a table that was inclined and how it was this battle between two two participants. And I referred to that game because I didn't couldn't quite remember the name of it. I referred to it as knockball. Well, thanks to some good friends of mine who grew up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, along with me, and therefore recognized the game I was describing and did some digging, I have discovered that the name of that game was Knuckleball. And apparently, I did some more digging myself, the game, and this shouldn't surprise anyone, right? But in episode one, I did imply that maybe it was totally localized to Harrisonburg, Virginia. However, apparently that game has a much broader geographic scope than simply Harrisonburg. So if you're interested in learning more about that game, getting a table and some supplies for yourself, the name of the game is Knuckleball. Look it up, see what you can find, maybe teach it to your kids. We can bring back a resurgence of this game that led me to get in a fight and then get threatened with some very negative racial stereotypes. All this is covered in episode one. So if you haven't heard episode one, I think now you owe it to yourself, right? Like with all that housekeeping and all the that I've just discussed in the first 15 minutes of this episode, you got to go back to episode one. And really, you got to go back to all three episodes because between Knuckleball and me gunning for my grandma, I know that if you haven't heard those episodes, you're thinking to yourself, damn, what in the hell did I miss? So please check them out. Or if you're a repeat listener, feel free to listen again. I'm hoping this shit is like wine and and improves with age. It's only one way to find out, right? So, without further ado, let's jump into today's story. And today's story in my life takes place at about the same age I was in episode one. So, eight years old, nine years old, ten years old. One of those three ages. And I know it was one of those three ages because it takes place during my time playing peewee football in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I know for a fact that peewee football in Harrisonburg was eight years, eight years old, nine years old, or ten years old. It was only one of those three ages you were allowed to be. And so I know this is a pretty early memory once again. And unlike episode one, which was kind of a dagger, right? When you hear those counselors, almost explicitly telling an eight-year-old Jimmy Lincoln that black children are violent and dangerous. That kind of hurts, and that kind of hits the target and the bullseye, and you're like, damn. Today's story involves some, some nuance and subtlety. But that's kind of the point, too. White supremacy has survived for one reason anyway, for so long in this country, because it has this shape-shifting quality to it, because it's adaptable and nuanced and sneaky and almost invisible. If white supremacy was all the N-word and burning crosses and people wearing white sheets with eye holes cut out, it would be much easier to defeat because it would be much easier to recognize. And so those of y'all listening to today's story, I want you to reflect 
on those very subtle, nuanced ways that white supremacy is perpetuated and that we as white people are socialized into the system. So today's story takes place at a peewee football practice sometime in the, in the 1980s. If I was eight or nine, then it had to be like 86 or 87. Disclaimer, I played football my entire childhood, adolescent, teen years. From 8 to 18, I played football every single season. Disclaimer number two, though I love football, I was never exactly good at it. And we'll explore my high school career because it ties into this whole topic of whiteness. We'll explore that later in future episodes. But for today, we're going to talk about my peewee career. And specifically, one single practice. In fact, specifically, one single sentence that I overheard at one single practice. That's it. Today's entire episode is based on a single sentence. So let me set the stage. As best I can recall. Had to be September, October. One of these beautiful, crisp fall days. And especially if you're in the South, it's one of those days that's often warm enough that you don't need a coat, but cool enough that you're not sweating. That is, unless you're a nine-year-old out there practicing football. And somebody at this practice must have screwed up. I have no idea who it was that screwed up. But I do know that it must have been someone on the other side of the ball from where, which I was playing in that practice. And anyone who's ever been around football will be familiar with this scenario. The offense and the defense were lined up against each other, 11 on 11, practicing who knows what. And one of those units had a big screw up. Because our coach a man who coached me throughout Pee Wee football and who knew the game well and taught me a lot about football because our coach as punishment, as a means of disciplining, whichever unit screwed up, made that side of the ball run, made that side of the ball do some laps around our practice field. And by that side of the ball, for those who maybe aren't familiar with football practices and football coaches, I mean, all the people on defense or offense. I can't remember which it was. Let's just say it was defense. Because I remember mostly playing offense. So somebody on the defense or multiple people probably on the defense screwed up. Maybe they weren't paying attention. Maybe they were lollygagging. And if you don't know the meaning of lollygagging, please Google it. But it is by far one of my favorite old school football coach terms. And when we talk about my high school years in football, by the way, I'm going to have a whole slew of them because my high school football coach was famous for his old school saying. But somebody on the defensive side of the ball was lollygagging or screwing up or just doing something they shouldn't have been doing. As a result, our peewee football coach made the whole defense run some laps. I don't remember how many. It was probably one or two around the practice field. And as the entire defense is running laps, I found myself standing near the coach. Not on purpose or anything. Just happened to be standing near him. And I have always, always been an eavesdropping human being. And I think I will continue to be for the rest of my life. I cannot help it. Humans fascinate me. Listening to humans talk, especially when they don't know you're listening, is one of the most intriguing, interesting things you can do. It's also just nosy, right? Like, come on, we can call it what it is. And when you're a kid, eavesdropping on adults can be really fun and really insightful. And so the defense is running. They're doing these laps. And I'm standing near the coach within earshot, but not close enough that he even realizes I'm within earshot, if that makes sense. And out in front of the pack of these players who were running laps, 
while the rest of us are, are chilling, drinking water, waiting for them to finish, whatever we were doing. Out in front of this pack of players who was running laps was one of my black teammates. Now, because youth football in Harrisonburg, Virginia, like youth football in many areas of this country, was based on geography. It was similar to the summer camp I described, the summer day camp I described in episode one. It was similar to our public school system in that it recreated patterns of residential segregation in our town. Therefore, my football team, just like my elementary school, just like my day camp, had very few black players. However, we did have maybe two, three, and one of them was leading the pack of the defenses. They ran laps after being disciplined for lollygagging. I hear my football coach turn to one of his assistants. And I will never forget this sentence for the rest of my life. Even though at the time, like I said, I was more caught by the, the colorful language than I was by the implicit racist undertones of this sentence. My football coach turned to one of his assistants in reference to the black teammate of mine who was leading the pack. And here's what he said to his assistant. This is the sentence that this entire episode is based on. He said, that boy runs like a deer. Now, if he could just get his head out of his ass, we'd be fine. I'll repeat. And I don't remember word for word how he said it, but I do know runs like a deer. That phrase was used, and I do know head out of his ass was used. So what you're hearing is as close to a primary source as I can give you. My football coach, in reference to an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old or possibly a 10-year-old, who was running quickly, who was running fastly in front of, is fastly a word? I don't think so. Who was the fastest runner of a pack of runners, referred to this eight or nine or 10-year-old young black child in this way. He said, that boy runs like a deer. Now, if he could just get his head out of his ass, we'd be fine. All right, on the surface, not the worst thing a football coach could say to a child. In fact, he didn't even say it to the child. He said it to another adult. He didn't know I overheard. In a vacuum, It's a fairly innocuous statement in some ways. At least that's what I think some of y'all might be thinking. In a vacuum, you might be thinking to yourself, that's it? That's the focus of today's episode? That boy runs like a deer? Now if he could just get his head out of his ass? That's it? That's the smoking gun for episode four? And in a vacuum, I, I would be inclined to agree with anyone who's thinking that. But none of these episodes, just like none of our lives, none of these stories I'm going to tell exist in a vacuum. They all exist within a specific context. And so I think when we bring context back to this story and we start to unravel this quote, I think it'll become more clear why this quote has, is so problematic and perhaps why it has stuck with me and why it came back to me as I'm reflecting on stories that I wanted to tell for this season. The first part of the quote is where we'll begin. Well, let me time out. I need to point out that I think the only reason I remember this quote is because, and all my listeners can identify with this, when you're a child and you hear adults curse or cuss, it's like discovering a little gold coin. It's just, there's something about hearing adults, especially adults in authority who don't necessarily curse a lot, or who you know the quote-unquote rules of comportment say they're not supposed to curse or cuss. When you hear one of those adults curse, it's like a miniature jackpot. You're like, bingo! So I think the head out of his ass 
was probably why this quote stuck with me at the time and then wedged itself into my subconscious only to reemerge later. Once again, just like in episode one and just like in most of these episodes until I become much, much, much older. I wasn't an amateur sociologist sitting there thinking, hmm, that's an example of how I'm being socialized to support a system of white supremacy. It was not, I'm not trying to imply that at all. So with that caveat, let's move on to breaking down this quote. The runs like a deer part. On the surface, that's a compliment. I wish, I spent half of my life wishing I could run like a deer. Shit, I would forget deer. I would take like a, an even slower animal. A very excited sloth. I was not a very fast runner. Still not a very fast runner. I would have killed for a coach to have ever mentioned that I ran like a deer. But that's in a vacuum. If we bring in context... I think in many of my listeners, you're probably already hitting that aha moment. The problem with that statement is, though it's complimenting someone on their physical attributes, it's an incredibly dehumanizing statement. It's comparing a human being to an animal. And unfortunately, it fits right in line with our country's long history of dehumanizing black men and women and looking at their bodies in a way that led us to believe they were closer to animals than humans. So whether we go back to the middle passage in slavery and the idea that black bodies were literally looked at and conceived of and used of similar to, to animals that labor in a field. Or whether we look at modern day athletes today and how we talk about them. This notion of black human beings being somehow endowed differently than white human beings and black bodies. Even when we're using it in a positive, seemingly complimentary way, this notion of black bodies being other, being distinct from, being separate from other human bodies is a really, really powerful long-lasting and dangerous stereotype. And the danger comes in the second part of the quote. But for my listeners, many of whom I'm sure are sports fans, I want you to reflect not only on what you've heard in the past, but I want you to pay attention on what you're going to hear in the future. And pay attention to how adults and coaches and television announcers and analysts, how they talk about black bodies. And specifically how they talk about black bodies in comparison to white bodies. And to see if you don't detect some of the same dehumanization as well. Whether it's calling them freaks. Like that's a term that's often used in a supposedly complimentary way towards black athletes. He is a freak of nature. I've heard LeBron James described that way. I've heard Randy Moss described that way. Hell, Javon Curse, the former defensive end, most notably for the Tennessee Titans. His nickname was The Freak. And though there's an element of compliment in that, in those terms and in those phrases, there's also a strong element of dehumanization in those phrases. And there's a, there's a singular focus as well on physicality, on this idea that black athletes are successful not because of their brains or not even because of their effort, but because they're simply just endowed with these incredible athletic abilities that 
whether they want to or not, they're going to be faster or jump higher or hit harder. And if you don't believe me about this trend, there have been some recent studies to back it up. The New York Times just in June published an article that discussed some research that had been done throughout soccer leagues in Europe, most notably in England, but also in Italy and Spain as well. And what this study found, unsurprisingly, is that when announcers talked about black soccer players, they focused on their physicality. They focused on their quote-unquote freakish athletic ability. They didn't focus on their intellectual ability. They didn't focus on their skill level. They focused on these dehumanizing aspects. And then in contrast, when these announcers talked about their white peers on the same field playing the same game, they were much more likely to talk about things like leadership and intelligence and work ethic. Now that study, which relates to soccer, reinforces what some researchers found back in 2005 when they looked at televised college sports in the U.S. So specifically, the two sports they focused on the most were college basketball and college football. And this 2005 study was published by two scholars, James Rada and Tim Wolfemeyer. And they found the same pattern. I quote from their study, portraying African-Americans as naturally athletic or endowed with God-given athleticism exacerbates the stereotype they wrote by creating the impression of a lazy athlete, one who does not have to work at his craft. And that's where the danger comes in for the the seeming compliments. It's not that it's bad to say that black athletes are fast or that black athletes can jump high or that black athletes are powerful. But when that's all we say or when that's the primary focus of what we say, it seems to imply other things about their character and their intellectual ability. Not to mention, as I discussed a few moments ago, it seems to imply also that they're somehow less human or differently human than those of us who aren't black. So that's the first part of the quote from my football coach about my young black teammate running like a deer. The second part worries me just as much, if not more. Now, if he would just get his head out of his ass, we'd be fine. I want y'all to just think about for a second who he's talking about. He's talking about a child, not even a middle schooler, not even a teenager. A nine or a ten-year-old child having his head in his ass. Now, I'm not saying that this black teammate of mine had a good attitude or a bad attitude. I honestly can't recall. Though, if I can't recall, that should tell you that it couldn't have been that bad. But I do know as a parent and as an educator with almost two decades in the classroom, that every single young person you encounter is going to have an attitude at some point in his or her life is going to talk back, is going to have trouble following directions, is going to goof off or horse around. Developmentally, that's what eight and nine and 10 year olds are supposed to do. Developmentally, that's what eight and nine and 10 year old boys are especially supposed to do. Developmentally, That's what eight and nine and 10 year old boys are supposed to do at five o'clock on an October afternoon after having spent all day in school. But the way the coach said it, get his head out of his ass. That phrase, colorful as it is, and I'm, I'm a big fan of colorful language, don't get me wrong, but that phrase also implies that it's intentional. That this nine or 10 year old black athlete is intentionally having an attitude problem and that he needs to fix it. And once again, not only is that developmentally inaccurate, but when we think about the historical context 
and all the endless tragic examples of how young black children are held to different behavioral standards than young white children, then it becomes a really dangerous and problematic statement. And when I talk about context, I'm talking about Tamir Rice playing with water guns in the park and police assuming that they must be actual handguns and then murdering him. When we talk about context, I'm talking about the countless studies that have shown that in educational settings, even as young as preschool and kindergarten age, that black children are punished more severely for the exact same behavior than their white peers, are suspended and disciplined more harshly, suspended more frequently and disciplined more harshly, even at the age of four and five than their white peers. Or when we think about the very specific and very tragic example of the Central Park Five, now known by many, thankfully, as the Exonerated Five. The five young black and Latinx teenagers in New York City in the late 80s who were unjustly and wrongfully convicted of sexual assault and how very few people at the time, other than perhaps their mothers, looked at those teenagers, those young teenagers, those 13, 14, 15-year-old boys, looked at them as adolescents and looked at them as children. They were looked at as adults, savage adults, as super predators in the words of Reagan. By the way, if you haven't seen Ava DuVernay's When They See Us on Netflix, whew, you gotta watch that shit. Um, yeah, just watch it. It will not make you happy, but it will illustrate completely everything I'm talking about with this notion that society and those in authority in society who happen to often be white, whether we're talking about teachers, police officers, or in this case, a peewee football coach, how we have these completely unreasonable expectations for how black children should behave. And that when white children behave in identical fashions, we write it off correctly, I would say, as well, that's how kids, be that's how kids behave, that's how kids act. But when black children behave in that way, when black children goof off, when black children act disrespectful, whatever that means, the whole concept of respect is kind of complicated. When black children are talking when they're not supposed to in class or in practice. When black children don't seem to be listening to the adults they should be listening to. How often white folks immediately jump to something nefarious. He or she has an attitude problem that he or she needs to fix. In short, we don't give them the benefit of the doubt. And unfortunately, when that happens, not only are we repeating centuries-old tropes about black people, but we're putting their lives at risk. Because when you believe that black children are just more likely to have these dangerous negative attitudes and that they're choosing to have these dangerous negative attitudes, then it means you're going to react in kind. And you're not going to be open and you're not going to be compassionate and you're not going to be empathetic. But that you're going to be angry. And maybe, in the case of the police, unfortunately violent. He runs like a deer, but he needs to get his head out of his ass. One simple quote from a peewee football coach is able to simultaneously dehumanize my black teammate. while at the same time holding him responsible for being a child 
as if he's choosing consciously to be difficult or to be unruly or to be anxious or to be energetic or to lack of an attention span, whatever it is. But it's holding them to this impossible standard. So think about that. Listeners out there, think about the times that you have heard people talk about black bodies, specifically black athletes. And then think about how people talk about black children, especially how white people talk about black bodies and black athletes and how white people talk about black children. Once again, in a vacuum, it's not the worst statement to make, even with context. Remember, my coach didn't say it to this black teammate of mine. He was just saying it to another adult, and I just happened to overhear it. But in overhearing it, whether he knows it or not, he's socializing me. Eight, nine-year-old little white football player is learning whether I realize it or not. He's learning from a white authority figure how to talk about black people and how specifically to view black children. That's how systemic racism and systemic white supremacy perpetuates itself. A million tiny comments, a million throwaway statements or seemingly throwaway statements all those comments and statements together make up the threads that are brought together to create the tapestry that I referenced earlier in this episode. As always, thank y'all for tuning in. I hope it was enlightening. Hope it was somewhat insightful. Hope it was interesting above all else. I never want you to tune into this podcast and be bored. And I hope it's causing listeners to reflect back on their own experiences. You know, I want to hear from y'all. My email is not going to change. JamesLincoln313 at gmail.com. Please hit me up. Please let me know experiences that you have witnessed or seen or, or gone through firsthand. So we can continue this conversation and continue this journey into whiteness. Y'all be good. Y'all stay safe. Peace and love. Until next time, I'm out.